What happens is as these people work together and discuss it, and they come to the conclusion that this is going to work, Mm -hmm. they, like anybody else who's participated in painting the fence, they become advocates. They're invested in it. They now understand it. And so you've kind of doubled your investment. Not only aren't they critics, but they are supporters. Heads up, Bending Granite fans. This is Tim Hillock with my podcast, Bending Granite, about people making a difference. This is part two of a three-part podcast with Tom Moskeller interviewing past mayor Paul Soglin. I hope you listened to part one where Paul talked about the importance of trust when getting something done. In this episode, you'll hear Paul's approach to bringing people from all sides of an issue together to achieve agreement. Paul shares his story on how the Minot Terrace got built. Throughout the podcast, you're going to hear from current and past directors of Monona Terrace. So let's get started. This is a little sidebar, but I think it's a great story or relevant story, which is the convention facility, Paul. And I'd love to have you as mayor talk about what that was like, giving you around that through many iterations of getting that darn thing, um, the footings down for that. So well, talk about that a little bit. All right. So, so as a way of history, Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright in the 1930s came in with a design for a civic building for the city of Madison, Wisconsin. It's now 1990. Wright has been dead for uh, over 30 years. Several attempts were made. At one point, we went out to bid on his facility, and we were $250,000 short, and it killed it. That was in 1969. Then uh, I tried in the 70s to revitalize it, and it failed. So the right facility, the design was there, but it's now 1989, and there's a second discussion. That second discussion is Madison needs a convention center. Where does it go around the downtown? So about three different people, four different people, contacted me in early April after the election in 1989 and said, why not use the Frank Lloyd Wright concept for the convention center? Why not modify it from a civic building with an auditorium and city offices into a convention center? And these are all different people with different interests. One was Ricardo Gonzalez, who owned a uh, popular night spot in Madison, the Cardinal Bar. A couple of people came in, was, uh, was Jim Carley, and um, Bud Arnold, engineers and developers. Gary Knowles, who was the head of the State Tourism Bureau at one point, sent me a postcard of the Sydney Opera House Mm -hmm. and wrote on it, use Monona Terrace for the convention center and it'll be as recognizable as the Sydney Opera House. And then one wagon, the 
plan department with a sense of humor because this was the time of, uh, shortly after the time of the production of the movie, Field of Dreams. It simply sent me an interdepartmental memo on a pink paper that we used, and all it said was, build it and they will come. <laughs> now there's all these dispersed views and opinions, and one critical change has also taken place in regards to Frank Lloyd Wright. The two Madison newspapers were at Logger's Head, on the right project for the past 40 years. The Cap Times always supported it. The State Journal always opposed it. But now the State Journal, which is adamantly pushing for a convention center, says, let's use the right design. This might be a good place to step back for some background. Frank Lloyd Wright's last dream, as he called it, would be a gift to his boyhood hometown of Madison, Wisconsin. It would be a community center designed to sit on the shores of beautiful Lake Monona. What Wright proposed was a place to bring the community together. On this issue, the city would remain politically, socially, environmentally, and intellectually divided for almost 60 years. That's right, 60 years. It is probably one of the most contested buildings in American history. Frank Lloyd Wright was, after all, recognized by many, admittedly even by himself, as the greatest American architect. He was loved by some who would be honored to have a building by him in their community. For them, it would be a dream come true. But like some artists today whose personal life and views can offend our particular ideas of good and bad, it was difficult to separate Wright, the artist, from the man. Many viewed Wright as a rascal, a flawed, even amoral man. It would be an embarrassment for them to have a Frank Lloyd Wright building built in their city. Wright had a lot of descriptors, great architect, scoundrel, revolutionary, pacifist, genius, tawdry. There wasn't a lot of in-between for people. They were on one side or the other. So we went through a series of steps. The first and most important was having one of Wright's young apprentices 40, 50 years ago, Tony Putnam, who had worked on the project all through the 50s, 60s, and 70s come in and sit down and look as to whether or not, by modern building requirements, handicap accessibility, new building standards, whether or not the right building, Monona Terrace, could be built because it is a work of art. You need to keep the proportions the same. And the bottom line is we can completely reproduce the building from one end to the other, top to bottom, by simply extending the length of the building, one and a half feet. So that'll work. Hi, I'm Connie Thompson. I'm the current executive director at Monona Terrace, but I started out in 1997 as a customer service coordinator. The, the reaction I always get is, that is such a beautiful building. It's on a lake with a view that is second to none. Even on the worst day, 
you can look out and see the beautiful views of the lake. And it just, it always is, um, it's always like it's the first time. My name is Greg McManners. I worked at Monona Terrace for 18 years from 2002 to 2020. And for the last 10 years, I was the executive director there. First time I walked into Monona Terrace was through the front entrance. I parked in the parking garage and I walked in the front entrance. And that's going on 25 years ago. And I can remember those first steps. I can remember walking down the hallway to the executive office uh, to go to my interview. And I was just stunned by its beauty, stunned by some of those spaces are so special. Lecture hall, grand terrace as you look out over the expanse of the lake. The, the, the views are magnificent. And from a convention center standpoint, they are probably uh, some of the best. Now the question is two things. Will the community embrace the design and will the economics work? So to shorten the next two years, what we did is we brought together this incredibly diverse group of people, very different political outlooks, very different backgrounds. They were put into two committees, one to work on the design, one to work on, and when I say design, it's more than design, it's what we would call placemaking. Mm -hmm. How it relates to the lake, how it relates to the rest of the downtown. And the other, working on the economics. I mean, we can't afford to build a convention center that won't support itself. Hi, I'm Joan LeMayhew, and I was privileged to be the director of Monona Terrace from 1996 through the year 2000. When I walked into the airport the first time and asked the Convention and Visitors Bureau gentleman, tell me about Monona Terrace, he says, it's a white elephant on the lake. <laughs> that was the day that I came in for my first interview. There were two purposes for the center as far as I could sort of manage in my own brain. And one of them was definitely, how do we serve as an economic catalyst for Madison, particularly downtown Madison? Downtown Madison today is a whole lot, very different than downtown Madison um, 25 years ago. Monona Terrace and the development of it was really seen as a key to reinvigorating the downtown and bringing in economic activities, bringing back restaurants, uh, retail, adding uh, more uh, vibrancy to the hotel scene. Um, so that was a, a very big part of it. The, the other part of it though was that the center really belonged to the citizens of Madison, citizens of Dane County, and frankly, the citizens of the state. Here's Connie Thompson again. So back in 1997, um, when I was hired, it was it was hard to um, find a place to get food. Like the whole downtown in 1997 was empty storefronts, honestly. To get any sort of food quickly, we had to walk over to State Street. But as the you know as we started doing business, and especially in 1998 when we were um, really really busy. The downtown transformed, and it started being a place where people came, a place where um, 
people from the conventions that we were hosting would, you know, go out to at night and, you know, be entertained and have good food. And I feel like Monona Terrace was really the catalyst of the, the kind of the rebirth of the, the square in the downtown area. Here's more from Greg McManners. I think what's happened is exactly as Connie's described it. We, we've gone from a ghost town in the downtown area to uh, a extremely vital with a, with a feel all to its own. You know, the malls used to be the place to go. And then uh, there was a vitality there that you couldn't replicate anywhere else in the city. Stop and think about it. I think, I think at one point, the square was 50% vacant. And now you have million-dollar condos on the square. The key here was bringing together not just advocates, but very importantly, critics. Critics who either didn't like the Frank Lloyd Wright design, critics who didn't like the idea of a convention center, whatever their reason, critics who didn't think it was appropriate on the lake. What happens is as these people work together and discuss it, and they come to the conclusion that this is going to work, mm -hmm. They, like anybody else who's participated in painting the fence, they become advocates. They're invested in it. They now understand it. And so you've kind of doubled your investment. Not only aren't they critics, but they are supporters. In any, any competition where, say, you've got five people on one side, five people on the other, if three people on the other side come over, You've not got an eight to two advantage. Mm -hmm. And that's principally what happened. I had very, very little influence on the design aspects, on the placemaking aspects, on the, uh, on the economics. Those two committees devised with the architects and with the financial people, the responses. They painted the fence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I trusted them. Yeah. I knew whether they were critics or supporters that they were good, trusting people. Yeah. Yeah. And the building, as we designed it, is accessible to the community. We have lots of community-based functions there. One of the greatest events in Madison is Dane Dances. Now, it bothers me that it's not called Madison Dances but it's called Dane Dances After the County. But those four nights every August, uh, when we bring in such diverse and wonderful music, I mean, we have to have people, ushers at the entrance to the rooftop, uh, counting the number of people coming in, because otherwise we'd have too many people on the roof greater than the weight could support. And it reaches a point about two hours into the concerts, into the dance, we only let people in when other people leave. Once again, this is Joan LeMayhew. Back to the community portion of it. When we first opened, you know, I mean, we opened to just record crowds, thousands. I think we said 57 or 58,000 people in a few days, three days, if I recall. Thousands of people, but then what? People were a little yet, you know, hey, you know, what's going on? What, what can we do? And very fortunately, 
um, we had some people again on our board who said, you know, you need to have something going on every week for the community. And Jeff Bartell came up with the idea, why don't you do concerts? And I said, that's a great idea, but I am like, I'm up to here, I'm up to here. And he actually took on the programming of the concerts. I made one single call to Dave Zwiefel at the um, Capital Times and said, Dave, we've got this idea. Would you fund the first 12 weeks? And he said, it's done. Yeah, I mean, my hat's off to the community of Madison and to so many of its um, citizens that cared a lot. And I would just add to this, Paul, that sort of great narrative of the convention facility is the fact that the title, the name of it is, is the Convention and Community or Community and Convention Center. Center, yep. Right. Community's so in the title. It's, it's both. And that was the ability to take it over the top, right, and actually get it built. Yeah. Because you think of convention centers, you think of... Uh, you know, the association of diamond drill bit engineers coming in from all over the world or the mathematics teachers convention or whatever. Many of the activities that take place there range from weddings to... Mitzvahs? Yes. Uh, we've had funerals. We've got local businesses holding their annual holiday parties. The... Urban League, the Chamber of Commerce, all of them uh, have meetings there now. Yeah, yeah. It's a real success story, and the principles behind it, to me, are so impressive. Yep. The way in which um, the culture was developed of the staff to be committed to customer care and... No, interesting thing here. So we decide we're going to build it. We're going to decide. We decide uh, all these, these things, but we have not yet. One of the last decisions was who is going to manage it. Mm. And I was very, very nervous about that one. I was fearful that the private sector, the hospitality industry people, were going to insist on private management. And I was very concerned because I had always envisioned public management. Well, when the team, mostly of private people in the hospitality industry, came back and said, we are recommending that the city manage it, I can't tell you how thrilled I was. But the important thing is why they made that recommendation. And what they said was this, is we've observed convention centers around the country, and we've observed... City of Madison management. If you want repeat business, you cannot cut corners. You have to be respectful of your customers, and you have to give them the highest quality service. That is the only way in this very competitive industry you get your customers to come back. And we are convinced that the way to do it is with city management. Mm. And that's been one of the strengths of the of the facility is repeat business. People keep yes. coming back and back and back. Like like so many other cities, our convention center is subject to being raided 
by competition from other communities around the nation, around the Midwest. And the Madison Community uh, and Convention Center has one of the best records in terms of retaining retaining business. Yeah, exactly. One more time with Joan LeMayhew. I think that had they not gone with the public management, the difficulties of making it a community and convention center would have been because a private management company is very bottom line oriented and a private management company, unless they're um, given huge financial incentive, they're not going to do what we did to and what the center currently does to provide service and access to the community. And I think the access portion of it is very, very big. And it takes um, a lot of um, compromises on the part of staff, a lot of compromises from a financial perspective to have the public have access to that building whenever it's open. Um, I think that really took a public sector um, management um, uh, instead of private sector management. And so I really think the city of Madison made absolutely the right choice in going with their own management team and not going to another another um, outside management company. Absolutely, 100%. After 70 years, almost, Madison got its convention center, and it sits there on the shores of Lake Monona. It's in virtually every photograph of, of the city, every postcard, and economically, it did what it was supposed to do. It created jobs, really good jobs. It has helped the economy of the city, and that in turn has helped pay for the good works that we like to do in regards to community services. Paul is atypical of today's modern problem solvers. With the unshakable belief in technology, the narrowness of focus, the ironclad self-confidence. You can find the evidence of modern problem solvers all around us today. All equally well-intentioned, all equally successful in their own fields, all equally applauded by the world around them. I applaud them too sometimes and profit from their victories just as much as you do. I just would have thought they'd give more credence to the importance of trusting people. I have an affinity for problem solvers. And Paul, I think, is one of the best. But he cannot conceive of a solution that does not include input from people with diverse outlooks and opinions. Paul brings people together. He gives them a voice. He trusts them. He trusts the process. And they no longer need to be convinced or enrolled in his vision. They create their own and are trapped by it to achieve agreement, to move forward, to work together, to take action. 
Paul takes little credit for bringing critics and advocates together to, in his words, paint the fence, to become invested, to understand, to become advocates of their own vision, to believe. He takes little credit, but thank God he was there. Hey, thanks to our guests, the three Monona Terrace directors, Joan LeMahieu, Connie Thompson, and Greg McManners. Again, special thanks to Mayor Paul Soglin. If you haven't listened to part one of Paul's three-part podcast, I'd encourage you to do so. And stay tuned for the exciting conclusion in podcast three, where Paul talks about possibly one of the most important projects of his career. I'd also like to thank my co-conspirators on the Bending Granite core team, Maury Cotter, Mike Williamson, Kathleen Paris, and of course, our podcast interviewer, Tom Moskeller. You can always hear more about what we're up to on our website, bendinggranite.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Tim Hallock.